we do ourselves a disservice if we think for a moment that we can get the whole picture by our, our, through our smart devices. It's just not going to happen. I've seen too many occasions. That napkin I talked about hasn't been digitized yet. Will it? At some point, of course. How many other stories are out there on a napkin or on a letterhead or even on a carved into a piece of wood that we don't know about? Especially in the field of history, as close as a student can get to the real thing, they're going to get more from it. Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Howry, and welcome to the Ventura County Stars podcast, Never 30, where we look at timeless stories from the county's past. We call the podcast Never 30 because back when typesetters were part of the newspaper industry, reporters used to type a 30 at the end of a story. That let the typesetters know that there were no more pages, that the story was done. But there are some stories that have no ending. You can type to be continued or part two to come, but Never 30. In this episode, I continue my interview with Charles Johnson, who recently retired after 30 years as the director of the research library at the Museum of Ventura County. Here, he talks about how one item, in this case, a stereo view card, and don't worry, he'll explain what that is, opened up a window into a little known part of Ventura County history. And then he'll tell us about his thoughts and his fears on the future of historical research. Here's Charles telling the story of tracking down Lorenzo Dow Chilson. About 10 years ago, I had a conversation with a, 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 a photo collector in Pasadena. His name's Philip Nathanson. And this guy just collects one thing, stereo view cards. Doesn't collect other, other kinds of photographs, just stereo view cards. Can you describe what a stereo view card a is? A stereo view card is a card with two photographs uh, actually taken at the same time by a dual lens that was used with a holder so an individual could look at this card through a lens and get a three-dimensional photograph view. It would be, this is pre, pre-television, pre. Um, you're talking 1870s, 1880s. This was a big form of entertainment at the time. So this guy, Philip Nathanson, all he does is collect stereo view cards. And he knew that we had a lot of photographs by John Calvin Brewster, who was the first resident photographer in Ventura County. Brewster arrived here in uh, March of 1874. He died in June of 1909. I think it was June. Um, but there aren't very many stereo view cards from John Calvin Brewster. He took a lot of photographs, over 10,000, we think. But the number of stereo view cards is in the hundreds. Uh, the Museum Research Library is fortunate to have over a thousand of his prints, uh, four, maybe four or five hundred of his glass plates, but a handful of stereo views. He just didn't make very many of them. They were probably a trouble to make. So Mr. Nathanson had a photograph that we didn't have. And he said, what do you think about this? And he sent me a photocopy of it. This is ten years ago. It was a photograph of a man standing in an orchard and there were flowering trees and there's some other people in the photograph and there's something going on but I really didn't know what it was and the, the guy had to stand in front of a tripod. At the bottom of the card it said Chilson's in this little hand in this like one-eighth inch space in the bottom of the card. It says Chilson's Almond, California. 
And on the back, it says John Calvin Brewster, which is the photographer. So that's all we know about this thing. And so we started looking, and we didn't find very much. We found out that there was a man named Chilson who was here in the 1870s. We found a newspaper clipping that said, Juan Camarillo, that's Adolfo Camarillo's father, and a lot of people don't know that Camarillo's really started here at Ventura. At the, their, their home was at the corner of Ventura Avenue and Main Street. Juan Camarillo has taken over the property, once, once known so well by Mr. Chilson as for his fruits and vegetables or something like that. So all we knew was the guy was named Chilson. He'd had a property on the avenue. And what? So we started digging. We started with digging. And all we found was that this man, Lorenzo Dow Chilson, had arrived here in 1867 with his brother, William D., and that he had started an almond orchard on Ventura Avenue. So that's where this photograph was. It was on Ventura Avenue. The, the trail goes completely dead by 1880. We don't know anything. Now, fast forward a number of years. I go into Tucson with my wife, because we're looking up her family in Tucson, Arizona. And we're in the Evergreen Cemetery on the outskirts of Tucson. I'm walking down the cemetery row looking for headstones for her family. And I find Miranda Willett Chilson's grave. And it says underneath, wife of Lorenzo Dow. So I go to the Arizona Historical Society. They have three, they have three branches. One of them is in Tucson. I go in, and under Lorenzo Chilson, there's a scrapbook, which I think I was the first person who ever asked for it because it was still tied up with the twine. And I open it up, and there it is. Lorenzo Dow Chilson. This is a scrapbook put together by his second wife when he lived in Tucson. And in it is a poem about Ventura that was written in 1874. The name of the poem was Ventura and its surroundings. And it was this luscious reminiscence of this wonderful time in this town. And it said, I I've made a copy, but I wrote this originally in 1874. Okay, the story wants to get told. So from there, I tracked him, and then it began to open up more and more. It turned out that Chilson was there until 1910, and then he came back to Los Angeles and moved to San Pedro. And because he was a surveyor, which is what that tripod was in the first place, because he was a surveyor, he became part of the development of L.A. Harbor. Everything about Lorenzo Chilson is extraordinary. He had two children. One was named Ivanhoe, Ivanhoe Chilson, who went to Hill School, which was a school, the first brick schoolhouse in Ventura, built up above Poli Street. And the children were there. And then he had a daughter whose name was Abba Uimiu. Abba Uimiu Chilson and Ivanhoe, who went by Ivina. And apparently Chilson, who uh, had come uh, on the Overland Trail twice, gave his daughter a name, he said, which would keep her from ever being killed by Indians. You can't make it up. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so Chilson, um, his second wife dies. And then he's getting on in years, but he moves to San Pedro, meets a woman 30, 40 years younger than him on an electric car, and they're married in a month. And he says, I'll make you a deal. If you take care of me to my dying days, I'll give you every penny I own and everything else. And he, she did, and he did. And the kids went nuts. They tried to have him declared insane, but no. And I, Alice Wiedenbeck Chilson was his final wife. He died in 1921, buried at Wilmington Cemetery in San Pedro. And all of this comes from one conversation about one photograph.
Let's take a short break. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Michelle Rogers, Consumer Experience Director for the Ventura County Star. If you love listening to great stories like I do, the Ventura Storytellers Project has an all-new season of great live storytelling events planned for 2019. With four shows scheduled in the 2019 calendar, new themes will include stories of love, adventure, family, and much more from people in the community, just like you, and at locations across Ventura County. Tickets and information about these live events are available now at storytellers.com Ventura. Each of our previous shows have sold out, so get your tickets in advance. You can also purchase supporter seating to ensure you have a spot at every one of our shows for the upcoming season. I hope you'll join us. Just visit Storytellers.com Ventura. Before the break, Charles told how one item turned into the story of Lorenzo Dow Chilson. Now, let's listen as he talks about the future of historical research, how digital technology is changing everything, for better and for worse, and why historical research is a true never 30. It will never go away. We do ourselves a disservice when we say the JPEG of the original photograph is the same as the photograph. It's not. I'll tell you, when you're in the room with it, there's something about it. There is something about it. Um, there's just something about it. Um, I had a researcher who came in the research library about five years ago and wanted this to know if I had an 1855, the earliest, one of the earliest maps that was in the collection, USGS uh, map of the, uh, the river mouth of Ventura. And I said, um, she says, do you have the scan? She's an archaeologist. Do you have the scan? And I said, no. And she said, thank you. And she started to leave. And I said, but I have the original. And she said, and I quote, I can't use it. That was such a headbanger for me. I, I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we think for a moment that we can get the whole picture by our, our, through our smart devices. It's just not going to happen. I've seen too many occasions. That napkin I talked about hasn't been digitized yet. Will it at some point, of course. But how much else out there and how many other stories are out there on a napkin or on, on, on a letterhead or even on a carved into a piece of wood that we don't know about, especially in the field of history, as close as a student can get to the real thing, they're going to get more from it. He's also concerned about the different media people are using to document material. Floppy disks, anyone? Can you imagine trying to communicate in 40 years what's going on right now? Talk about fragmented. I think one of the great challenges is going, to, is going to be, in a way, we know so much more about each other right now. Who's going to be collecting all of this? And in what form? And in what form? And will that form be available to future generations? Gold CDs were the, um, you know, the premier storage uh, format. And we thought at the time that it was going to be at least 30 years. Well, it turned out it was about 11. Is that your big fear as a historian? That we're going to end up with formats that we're just going to lose big chunks of time because people can't interpret it? Yes, I mean, it's always a concern. I mean, keeping maps, keeping paper, linen, wood, glass plates, God knows. They, those are all fragile, but they're not nearly as fragile as a digital record. One thing I do want to ask you is, is you're talking about the incoming onslaught of communication. What about the outgoing? Have you found that with technology, 
A, you can find more people because you can put something on Facebook and say, I'm researching this and does anybody know anything about it and can you contact me? And B, getting what you have learned out to the public, getting some of this history out so that people can be educated about it. Is that the flip side to being overwhelmed by material that you don't know where it's coming from right. to being in control of getting it out there to the people? Absolutely. So how does someone go about starting a historical research project? Let's say someone wants to research small rural airports in Ventura County. Where do you start? This is what I think may have been my greatest value is when I would come in with a researcher, they'd say, I'm interested in airports. And then the question is, okay, you're interested in airports, where and when, and you try to focus in on what it is. But then you say, where would there be evidence? Because, again, you're trying to evoke history, right? What's there now may not be what's there in the past. How do you evoke that? And you say, okay, who's keeping records? Is there an aeronautical collection or uh, agency that somebody needs to report to? Where do airplane licenses go? Who own the property? What are the photographs? Who live there? What kind of reminiscences? What maps? What taxation records? Are there lot records? And you just come at it from as many ways as you can. And I think that's what research libraries are really good at is they layer, layer materials and then you begin to what triangulate you begin to get more of a dimensional aspect of what it is you're looking at. And more than anything, Charles believes the key is to walk away from that computer screen. I think one of the great challenges with the internet, don't get me wrong because I use it every day of my life, um, is that how we discern what is of value and what isn't. And I think it helps to have your feet in a 3D world, then you can make decisions about um, um, what it is you're interpreting. So I think that while digital is everywhere and it's in front, let us remember that there are still things that are on paper and on microfilm and on linen, uh, maybe even on glass, that um, will lead us in other directions. So we, we need to be mindful of all those formats. I think that's the only way you can go forward with history and make any sense of it, honestly. Never 30 is a property of the Ventura County Star, a member of the USA Today Network. I'm your host, Andrea Howery. The show is co-produced by me and Anthony Placencia, who also serves as the show's technical director. The news director of the Ventura County Star is Darren Peshka. Our consumer experience director is Michelle Rogers. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit Never 30 in the iTunes store and leave a review. And don't forget to invite friends to listen. I would also like to invite our Ventura County listeners to support this podcast by signing up for a print or digital subscription to the Ventura County Star. Just visit subscribe.vcstar.com to see all our special offers. On the next episode of Never 30... My Duncan never dies. She really doesn't. When you think back, normally that's how I start the tour, you think back to how life was in the 1950s. Everybody felt safe, you know, it was post-war, there was a resurgence of vitality and, and everybody, you know, coffee clutches over the backyard fences, 
Nobody locked their doors. Nobody was suspicious of honestly anybody. And women didn't commit this kind of heinous crime. So when this happened, it was just, it, it still is a horrendous crime because she murdered not only her daughter-in-law, but she murdered her granddaughter. And so for it, it garnered such worldwide headlines that it's just stayed in the press for the longest time. 